0: reading is taken from John chapter 4, verses 4 to the end. Now he had to go through Samaria, so when he came to a town in Samaria called Sishar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, And who it is that asks you for drink? You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to internal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, "'Go call your husband and come back.' "'I have no husband,' she replied. "'Jesus said to her, "'You are right when you say you have no husband. "'The fact is you have had five husbands, "'and the man you now have is not your husband. "'What you have just said is quite true.' "'Sir,' the woman said, "'I can see that you are a prophet. "'Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, "'but you Jews claim that it's the place we must worship is in Jerusalem.' "'Woman,' Jesus replied, "'Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in the truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks.'" God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is the word of the Lord.
1: This morning, um, we're going to continue our series on Encounters with Jesus in John's Gospel. David's going to come and speak to us this morning. Um, I started with the word expectations. I've heard this talk once already, and it's brilliant. Uh, isn't that cruel? <laughs> but um, let's pray for David, especially now, as he prefers to speak to us a second time. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for those who encountered you in the pages of Scripture. Thank you for the new life and acceptance you brought to them. And we thank you that you call us not only to read your word, Lord, but you empower people to speak it. And so, Father, we pray for your anointing to come upon David by your spirit, Lord. Give him words to speak that speak directly into our hearts and our minds so that we ourselves may encounter you afresh here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.
2: Okay. Hello. Try it again. Hello. Hello. Excellent. Whatever happens for the next 20 minutes or so, I know you're all awake at the beginning. Um, if you don't know me, I'm David. Um, we've been coming to this church for a few years with my wife, Liz. Um, we normally do children's work. A um, lot of stuff with Jane out in the ark. Um, so that's, that's me, if you don't know me. Is this working? Yes, it is. How does Jesus find you? We come to church expecting an encounter with Jesus. But how does he find you? We come to church expecting that in the worship, we will encounter Jesus. In the prayers, we'll encounter Jesus. Hopefully, in the reflections, we'll encounter Jesus. In the fellowship and the tea and coffee, we'll encounter Jesus. And at this time of year, we're in Lent, in our fasting, and as we look forward to the cross and the empty grave, we encounter Jesus. And this morning, particularly, we're privileged to have communion. And in communion, we expect to encounter Jesus. But this is a story of encounter and response. So in our encounter, how does Jesus find you? What is your response? Not how does he look for you. But when he finds you, how are you? So, at the beginning of this story, Jesus is, he's been in Jerusalem, there's a religious controversy brewing there, and he's not up for dealing with that at the moment, he's not wanting to kind of confront that at the moment, so he goes back home to Galilee. And there are two routes to Galilee, there was a long way round, and there was the shortcut. So he takes the shortcut through Samaria. The problem with going through Samaria is it means you might meet some Samaritans. And indeed, he comes to a well. It's, it says the sixth hour. That means about noon, hottest part of the day. And he sits by a well, and his disciples go off into town to buy food, and he's just chilling out by the well. And a woman comes to see him. Well, not to see him. She comes to draw water, and she meets him. And he says, can I have a drink? Encounter. And there are... Th- This is an encounter at a well. And well encounters in the Bible are a particular type of story. They're scattered throughout, particularly in the first five books of the Bible. You find them a lot. Because in the arid landscape of uh, the Near East, wells are important places. And so there are three types of encounter we see at wells. The first is the natural meeting the supernatural, a spiritual encounter. And we see this, for example, in Genesis 16 um, where Hagar, um, Abraham's uh, maidservant, um, is driven away by Sarah because Sarah is jealous of her relationship with Abraham. And she's driven off into the desert and she stops at a well where an angel meets her and tells her that she must return back to Abraham's household but that her son will carry the same promise that Abraham's other son will carry that he'll be the father of many nations. So that's the first type of encounter. The second type of encounter is clan meeting clan, the international encounter. And we see that, for example, when Moses is running away from Egypt. He kills a man in Egypt and he runs into the desert. And he stops at a well and there he meets some Midianites. And the Midianites take him in. And he becomes one of them, he lives among them. And he turns into, in Midia, the man... God needs him to be. And the final one is, again from Genesis, man man and woman meeting. We see this, um, as I say, in in fact, we see it in the Moses one, um, one of the Midianites. Moses meets Zipporah, who becomes his wife. We also see it, uh, Jacob um, is taking his flock through the land, and he stops by a well, and there is a, a girl with her flock, and he helps this girl to water her flock, and then he kisses her. And 14 years later, he marries her. Um, and so it's, it's men and women, but particularly often you find that it's men meeting their wives for the first time. So common is this in the Bible that one of the commentaries I read suggested it was kind of the biblical equivalent of meeting your wife at university. You know, It's just a kind of culturally normative thing. Some of you might be ahead of me when we turn to this story of the Samaritan woman meeting Jesus. Because this is all three of these. It is a meeting of a human being with Jesus, a God man. And the Jesus of John is the most godlike of the Jesus we encounter in the Gospels. So it's a spiritual encounter. We also have a Jew and a um, Samaritan meeting. So that is an encounter between different groups, clans. And most obviously we have an encounter with a man and a woman. And not, oh, not someone meeting their wife, but maybe in a metaphorical sense, we have the heavenly bridegroom meeting a convert, an early convert to the Gentile church that's to become his bride. So maybe we have all three of those. And certainly in the encounters we have in church, we expect to see these three as well. If we take communion, which we're doing this morning, it's certainly, it's a spiritual meeting with God. It's also, it's an international thing. There are people all over the world this morning who will take communion. Every denomination does communion. Every country in the world. There's even been a communion on the moon because Buzz Aldrin was a Catholic and he did communion on the moon. So this is a huge, this is clans meeting, clans international thing. Uh, And it's also... It's a meeting with each other, as well as with God. And it's men and women, and it's a relational meeting. So this is a kind of encounter we expect to have. But this is the story of encounter and response. So what is our response? The woman, the Samaritan woman Jesus meets, gives us six responses. And each one of them is in the form of an objection. If it works. Yes, it does. The first objection is the who am I objection. She says, he says, will you give me a drink? And the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? The who am I objection is the objection which says, if you, God, knew who I am, you wouldn't want to have this encounter with me. You would not be interested. She says, I'm a Samaritan woman. There's three parts to that. I'm a woman. It's hard for us to understand just how sexist the world of the ancient Near East was. For example, there was a, a group of rabbis called the bruised and bleeding rabbis. And the reason they were called the, blue, the bruised and bleeding rabbis is because when they were out on the street, they would close their eyes because they believed that if they saw a woman, it would make them sinful. So they walked into things and became bruised and bleeding. That's true. There are ancient documents witnessing this. Um, So so there were those people. This was kind of a normal thing. There was also a book called the Book of Sirach, which is actually in the Old Testament Apocrypha. So if you've got one of those at home, you can go and look this up. Um, And it's about chapter 42, I think. And it says in the book of Sirach, which was written about 150, 200 years before this, so it was a kind of relatively, reasonably contemporary opinion, that the goodness of a woman is less than the sinfulness of a man. So it's better to be a sinful man than it is to be a virtuous woman. And so this woman had no reason to expect that Jesus didn't think the same thing. Second thing, she says, is I'm a Samaritan. We think we know about the Samaritans because we learn about them in Sunday school. But the picture we get of them in Sunday school is that it's just a kind of racial tension. But it was much more about a religious divide. They were basically, they were racially the same as Jews, more or less. And they were religiously more or less the same as Jews. They had the Pentateuch, but they had their own version of the Pentateuch the first five books of the Bible. And they had their own version of the Ten Commandments, which enshrined in the Tenth Commandment the command to worship at Mount Gerizim, which comes back later. Um, And they also had their own expectation of the Messiah. Without the books of history and without David in their history, they weren't looking for a Messiah like David. They were looking for a Messiah like Moses. So they were heretics, and I think we see if we look at Christian history, just little doctrinal differences could be a huge deal. And so that was in what she was talking about when she said, I'm a Samaritan. She also says, I'm a Samaritan woman, which is a specific class. There's a slightly later um, rabbinic writing which says that Samaritan women were menstrually unclean from the moment they're born. So, whereas a Jewish woman, She would be menstruating, and then she'd stop, and she could wash herself, and then she would be free to associate with men. Samaritan woman didn't have that option. They, whatever point they were in their lives, from the moment they're born, they were unclean. And Jewish men could not associate with them without making themselves unclean. So when she says, I am a Jewish woman, all of this, uh, I'm a Samaritan woman, all of this is in her head, and she has no reason to believe it's not in Jesus' head as well. And Jesus' response to that, to her saying, if you knew who I am, you wouldn't want to talk to me. She says, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for living water, and I'll give it to you. Jesus accepts her and rejects that sense of rejection she has about who she is. So that leads us to the second objection, the practical objection. She then says, "She says you're promising me water, you don't have a bucket. You need to take your bucket with you to wells in the ancient world. Probably the disciples had taken Jesus' one into town when they went to buy food. So it was physically impossible, as far as she was concerned, for Jesus to do what he was saying he would do. And when we are in church, how often do we do that? How often do we say, this song, I don't know the words... Impossible for me to meet with God in that. This bread and wine, it's just bread and wine. It's impossible for me to meet God in that. Whatever it is. You know, I'm feeling under the weather. I slept terribly last night. It's impossible for me to meet God today. Practical objection. We do this all the time. I don't even know if we realize we're doing it. And before Jesus can respond to that, she comes up with a third objection, the who are you objection. The objection which says, even if God does want to meet with me, do I want to meet with him? What kind of person am I going to meet? Or what she says is, are you greater than our father Jacob? So maybe this is a historic objection. Yes, people met with God back in the past. The disciples met with God. We don't meet with God. Maybe Martin Luther or the reformers met with God. We don't meet with God. So... The who who are you objection is about, can God meet with us? And if he does, who do we meet? And Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of the water I give will never be thirsty again. But those who drink of this well will be thirsty again. So he takes her objection, you know, you can't give me water from this well, you don't have a bucket. Or you're not greater than Jacob, our father, who gave us the well. And he takes that and he says to her, whatever you think I'm promising you, what I'm actually promising you is better than that. It's a greater thing. It's not just water. It's living water and it's, it's the key to eternal life. So at this point, there's a break in the story where she apparently... Um, accepts his offer. She says, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And in saying that, she reveals she hasn't understood what Jesus is saying. Like Nicodemus that we heard about a couple of weeks ago, Jesus is talking about things that are spiritual and she is hearing things that are physical. There is still a blockage there. And so, for the first time, Jesus, since he said, Can I have some water, for the first time, he initiates part of the conversation. And that opens up. Why is it all? That opens up objection four, the hidden objection. This is the objection we hope no one knows, the objection we hope no one finds out. It's the objection which speaks to things that other people have put on us. She says, He says, go and call your husband. And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, You're right. The fact is, you've had five husbands. So the way we normally interpret this is that she is a sinner. She's a serial adulteress. And that she is ashamed of her sin. And how often do we come to church ashamed? of things that have happened in the week. And how often do we let that affect the quality of our worship? Or, one of the things I read in the run-up to this was uh, by a scholar called um, John Drain, who's a New Testament scholar. This is a minority opinion, but I thought it was worth mentioning. Later in John, we see another adulteress, and she's being stoned for her sin. And as I said, the Samaritans had much the same religion as the Jews. So the idea that someone will get to their fifth husband, their fifth adultery, is kind of implausible in this culture. So maybe this isn't a story about someone who is ashamed of their sin. Maybe this is a story about someone in a culture where you could divorce your wife for burning the dinner, and certainly you could divorce her for not being able to give you children, Maybe this is a story about a woman who every time someone said they loved her, they rejected her. Either way, she's coming to the well by herself at the hottest part of the day. She's trying to avoid people, especially when you consider that Sikar, the town she lives in, has a well within the town walls. So she's traveling out of her way to a far-off well in the time when no one goes to Wells because she's expect she doesn't want to see people she's expecting to be rejected whatever her lifestyle is, whatever the truth of that conversation about her husband's this is a woman who has been rejected over and over and over again and she is letting that get in the way of her encounter with God because she is expecting to be rejected by God as she has been rejected by everyone else And Jesus' response is not to condemn her for that, but to welcome her and to... This is something which Jesus obviously already knew, and he still offers her this living water. Objection five is a doctrinal objection. Having I mean, got the sin out the way, suddenly she's all about theology. And her question is: you, a Jew, say we should worship in Jerusalem, but our law tells us to worship on Mount Gerizim. And who is right? Because if you're right, then I'm excluded. And Jesus' response is not to say, eh, all religions lead to the same place. It's not to deny that religious truth exists. But what he says is, if I've invited you, it doesn't matter what your theology is, I've invited you. Don't exclude yourself because you feel like your understanding isn't good enough. I did a talk a couple of weeks ago at Gazebo where I did the doctrine of the Trinity, I said at the end of that talk, hands up everyone who understands the doctrine of the Trinity. A couple of people put their hand up. What well, I said to them, and what, something which I read in my, uh, in my study going into that talk was, um, if you are pleased with yourself for having understood the Trinity, you're actually pleased with your heresy. Because you don't understand the Trinity. No one does. So ah." Uh, Doctrine is never going to be perfect. The things we think about God in our head, we can work on it, but the things we think about God in our head are never going to reflect what God is in reality to himself. But that doesn't exclude you. Your understanding, everyone's understanding, being poor does not exclude you from this invitation. And our final objection... And this is the objection which I think is most personal to me. The everything will be wonderful when objection. Everything will be wonderful when half term comes. Everything will be wonderful when this cold goes away. Everything will be wonderful when I get married. Everything will be wonderful when I get that job. So I can't meet with God now, but I'll meet with him in a few weeks because everything will be wonderful then. And how often do we put off our relationship with God today for something that's going to happen tomorrow, but tomorrow never comes? She says to him, after everything else, after all his acceptance up to now, she says, I don't know, but I know that Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Everything will be wonderful then. And he says, I am he. I am the present reality of your future hope. It's the same thing he says to Martha in a few chapters when she meets Jesus on the road. Her brother has died, and she says to Jesus, how could you If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus says to her, do you believe in the resurrection? And she says, yes, on the last day. And he says, I am the resurrection. I am the present reality of your future. I am your half-term rest. I am the end of this cold. I am when you get that new job. I am your marital happiness. I am whatever it is that you're waiting for. I am that now, today. Six objections. I wonder if you relate to any of them. Some of you are thinking no. Maybe. Some of you are thinking six for six. I do all of those, brilliant. Um, But the invitation is there. And Jesus' response throughout this story is every one of these objections, he rejects her, her sense of rejection. He accepts her and says, you must not reject yourself from my love and my invitation because it's my love to give. Don't exclude yourself from it. So as we come to communion, don't be sitting in your seat thinking, who am I to take communion? God doesn't want to meet me. Don't be thinking, it's only bread and wine. Don't be thinking, who will I meet if I go up there? Don't be thinking, oh, I hope that thing no one finds out about. That's really, oh, I better sort that out first. Don't be thinking, I don't understand whether the physical body of Jesus is in this bread or if it's just a symbol. Don't be thinking, everything will be wonderful when X. And when X happens, then I'll be able to take communion, but not today. How does Jesus find you this morning?
0: Amen.